For fuck's sake. For fuck's sake. For fuck's sake. And another fine introduction. Thanks to my friend Dan Gunn, who whipped up that tune, which I have reused three times now. Uh, in China. He's in based in China right now. So uh, thank you for that again, Dan. And some former colleagues, uh, Phil from my days at Harvey Mudd College, Brian and Pete from Intel back in the day, and Mark uh, worked with Mark at his company while at Intel, and he also used to work at Intel. <clears throat> As you can hear, my voice is uh, still doing great in the Las Vegas weather drinking some tea, but let's get to it. Today is December 30th in the wee hours. It's still officially December 30th and still officially 2020. Both of those things are about to change, one and then the other. As you've probably gathered from the title of the show, Economeering, Today I'm planting the topic arc seed for discussion about all things economy. The economy means many different things to many different people. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's sort of a part of uh, how we conduct our lives. It's about working and buying things and selling things and conducting our existence. And it sort of governs the ease with which we're able to do that. But let's get started on uh, a seemingly tangential topic. Ketogenic diets, or diets in general. How on earth is that related? Well, let's see. How many times have you either changed the way you eat or changed the way you observe other people eating in that, well, maybe you've gone on a diet or maybe you have a friend or a family member or a loved one, whomever, that has uh, changed their diet either temporarily or as part of a New Year's resolution or, or however they accomplish it. And the goal of either you or them is to stick to that diet and for better or worse, you know, whatever the goal is, uh, achieve the goal. I myself adopted a ketogenic, I'll say lifestyle, I guess. In May of 2018, I wrote about it, a couple of articles. The reason I wrote about it was because I found that any time I mentioned that I was going keto, which is very trendy, there was always an opinion. There was always somebody who had their insights that they would like to share with me or their thoughts on it or their opinions or their views, how they didn't like it, how it sucked, how, how, how. And so uh, it occurred to me that it's far too easy for people to, myself included, you know, a long time ago, to offer unsolicited advice I didn't really ask for your thoughts, views, and opinions on my dietary choices, but uh, but here they are. So you know what you should do, or that doesn't work, or you know basically your 
your views shared with me without my asking are sort of, um, well, they're, they're unsolicited. So I wrote my, I wrote about my experiences the first, um, before I tried keto, I tried other, you know, vegetarian, vegan, even sort of paleo, but I never really, like I kind of dipped a toe into the waters, but I never, uh, subscribed completely. I never did the reading. I was kind of went with like, I guess this is vegan and I'm probably more vegetarian, but I kind of, you know, I said, oh, you know what? I'm just going to go very simple. Vegetables only, no meat. Um, I don't know that I was completely, I don't really drink milk, so really no dairy. But anyway, so I tried a few different things. And at some point, a former classmate of mine, Dan, uh, not Dan Gunn, <laughs> Dave Gan. You can see how I'd confuse those. Dave Gan posted on Facebook, of all places, that he had, I think he had dropped like 40 pounds. And uh, sticking to a keto diet. I said, wow, that that's, uh, that's pretty good. So I decided to do the reading, figure out how this really worked. And while I wanted to avoid getting into the trap of uh, weighing and measuring both food and me, eventually I would discover that that is really quite sensible to do. So... Anyway, so I did a lot of reading, <clears throat> I did a lot of uh, just research in general, and I started compiling, you know, things I liked that could fit into the keto diet, started looking at which nutritional elements might be missing, looked at supplements, assembled a shopping list of ideas and items, menus, and gathered up all these things. Dove in with both feet, intermittent fasting, OMAD, one meal a day. Um, I think I got my daily carb intake down below 10 grams on the typical one meal. And over a few months, I lost 70 pounds and felt better, going to the gym twice a day and all that. So I wrote about it because I found that everybody was an expert, but nobody knew what they were talking about because they were talking about their view of me, but I knew about me and I knew what I was experiencing and I knew that I enjoyed what I was eating and how I felt and all these other things. So I think it's very easy to tell someone else what you think you understand based on your own experiences. And it's very easy as well, especially in the days now of social media fire hoses, to hear these viewpoints and then to, to kind of accept them because if you transfer expertise onto someone that you have other relations with friendship or professional, personal, whatever, then you may be lulled into a false sense of knowledge based on a preponderance of opinion that may not actually be correct. There are countless papers on what sorts of fats, how much fat one should consume in their diet, low fat, no fat, how those are replaced with carbohydrate, 
how salt is bad for you, where those data come from, where those opinions come from. Maybe they're wrong. There are entire books now written about salt. I actually have it on my Kindle. You got to read it. Entire books about fasting. There's uh, There are countless YouTube videos now about keto diets and fasting and paleo, keto, Mediterranean, all these different diets. So what I discovered about me is I took the data for myself. I assembled a diet that worked for me that matched a keto style. And I, I was off to the races. So the take-home is uh, I can listen to various experts, various doctors, nutritionists, people who may or may not have their own agenda, may or may not be current, may or may not have bought into the things that they were taught and have heard for decades. You know, oh, low-fat diet, better than high-fat diet. Oh, there's nothing wrong with grains. Well, that's fine on a macro level. I don't mean macronutrients. I mean macro, the big picture. But for an individual, maybe a particular diet works better. I found that to be true. So I wrote several Medium articles. I, the titles are Danny DeKeto, uh, uh, an homage in a humorous way to Danny DeVito. Danny DeKeto, parts one through seven probably. A couple of graphs, a few of many links, some articles, some diet items, some pictures. Uh, not of me, because that's not any of your concern. But <laughs> the idea was not to show off uh, my progress so much as to explain my decisions so that in the event that the topic comes up, and I would like to express my opinion, it is not, here's what you should do, but here's what I did, and what worked and what didn't for me and the, the outcome. Take from it what you will. So how on earth does this apply to the economy? <laughs> maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. We'll see. So today, when we view, well, when we hear, we read, when we look at the economy around us, we hear, certainly, that the stock market is up or down, that the economy is good or bad, that the deficit is high or low, increasing or decreasing. <laughs> decreasing. But um, the debt, these are, these are things that we hear, and they kind of sound like low fat, uh, low salt, you know, all these things. These are notions that stop having meaning, and they just sound like trigger words or they sound like warnings or they sound like, uh, like, oh, I've been trained to think that that's bad. So I, I will just accept that as a, an alert, stop spending, who's going to pay for it? All these, all these, uh, tropes that we hear. And I will point out that I am still, I will say undecided. The more reading I do, the more interesting it is. And that's why I'm planting this topic arc because I would love to talk about it tomorrow. I've become a fan of uh, Mark Blythe, a professor at Brown. He's a political economist, has a lot of interesting insights, and he's pretty good at explaining his views. I recently read uh, The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton, Dr. Stephanie Kelton. 
I recently read uh, Arguing with Zombies, which is a collection of uh, articles by... Um, why am I forgetting his name? Um, I gotta look this up. I, I feel like an idiot. Uh, Krug, uh, Paul Krugman, thank you. I didn't have to look it up. I, it came to me. <clears throat> so Paul Krugman, he's a Nobel Prize winner, an economist. I'm not. Sh I I assume he's a doctor. I don't know his credentials, so I apologize for that. But uh, Paul Krugman certainly has been writing a lot on on the topic of economics and the economy for for a long time and so it was it was an interesting book i've read some other things and i did minor in economics engineering and economics probably go together pretty well although it turns out that economics needs philosophical and psychological inputs or understanding as well but engineering plus economics equals economeering because I am not an economist, and most people aren't, and yet the economy is something that we hear about, we're told about, we don't really understand, but we are affected by it every single day. Both the way it is today, the economy today means hmm, not a lot of jobs, not a lot of spending, um, we are at the I don't know about which point I was going to say. I was going to say the halfway point, but that's not true. We are in the uh, the thick of this pandemic, as I'm speaking. It's been in the U.S. certainly the better part of this year, if not longer, of 2020. It's had various, uh, mostly devastating effects on various parts of economies. But there's that's where we can start. Is when the discussion of the economy comes up, it is often viewed from a particular vantage point, often rather high up. So the national economy. If you're talking about state governments, they'll talk about the state economy. If you're talking about a city, the city economy. So where I live in Las Vegas, the economy is very tourism and hospitality centric. So if you're in the service industry or if you are a business person all in those lines, so you own a restaurant or a bar, maybe you are in the resort business, casino, show, entertainment, Vegas was hit quite hard because the tourism levels dropped. Fun fact, tourism in Las Vegas, a city of approximately 2 million people in the larger metropolitan area, According to the Las Vegas uh, Convention and Tourism Board, I think that's right, LVCTA. You can go to their website, uh, lvcta.something. Up until, you know, this year, so years prior, something on the order of 950,000 people per week visiting. Tourists, visitors for trade shows, conventions, vacation, whatever. And that number is off uh, significantly. I think at least 40% down and probably expenditure is down even if people do come here. Certainly room rates were lowered. And you know, so a lot, of, a lot of factors had to get adjusted fairly quickly to, to remain afloat. So that's, that's a local economy. 
the state economy, well, decisions made by the governor of a state may seem to be uh, may seem to be confusing at a city or a local level because the considerations are for an entire state rather than a locality. So I know here the governor, uh, Sisolak, has been chided or worse because of his shutdown views. And eventually they split them between, you know, how to shut down Las Vegas versus Reno, which are the two main population centers, uh, Washaw and Clark counties. So your locality will have its issues. And when you are facing what's going on in your backyard or front yard or, you know, your workplace, your local government has a different view of the economic conditions than does your state government. And of course, the federal government has a vastly different view. So if you are a modern monetary theorist or a Keynesian or a supply sider or, you know, there's any number of flavors, you have a different view of how those views differ. And therein lies the debate. And I think occasionally some confusion. So there are several things that I hope to talk about over you know, coming episodes along these lines. And like I said, I am not an economist. I certainly took micro, macro, money and banking, certainly read quite a bit. And we've all seen the economy because we are the economy. Don't let anybody tell you different. The stock market is an indicator, perhaps. In my opinion, it's sort of like saying, well, a lot of people are winning at craps. The economy is doing well. The economy is is production, it's consumption. That's us. Those are the people that make the economy. So the thing that I have noticed as I've been reading more and kind of reconnecting with my economic interests is uh, clearly the, uh, the stimulus checks are a big topic of discussion right now as I'm speaking. Will we get $600? Will we get $1,200? Will you get anything if you make too much? And there are disjoint arguments about, you know, people with a lot of money getting the checks that don't deserve it, but they're means tested, but that doesn't always make it into the talking point. So it's targeted stimulus, which is probably not the right word because these are really bailouts on an individual basis. Bailout is a popular word when you're talking about corporations not so much when you're talking about people. And I've noticed particularly, despite the fact that Nevada is a blue voting state, so to speak, and the color of states is, is, is ridiculous. That's another discussion. But there are several people, chit-chat, at the bar kind of thing, that view stimulus or or what's called entitlements, even though that's sort of a loaded but anytime the government, a government, is assisting people so that they don't die or that they can continue to contribute to society, like student loans or uh, food programs, uh, you know, rent, rent and mortgage assistance, any, any of these programs, the social safety nets that were developed uh, back in the 30s, those are viewed as handouts and entitlements and people are getting something for nothing and it's my tax dollars. 
And if you believe in the MMT view of the world, it's not actually our tax dollars. So there's a lot of, um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So I'm glossing over some of this stuff. But the thing that is, uh, that's tricky is that there's a, well, suppose going back to the diet, uh, analogy, if you argue that, uh, a high fat diet is bad for you and you go ahead and eat the no fat, high carbohydrate item, whatever it is, you may find later that, especially in, uh, from a personal perspective, that that was throwing off your insulin levels. That was, um, leading to weight, uh, weight gain is leading to, uh, arterial inflammation that was leading to, uh, sclerosis perhaps, or other maladies. Inflammation is a big deal. So that's, that's uh, not a doctor either, but so the take home is that, um, going with what you've always known to be true without knowing the why can lead to personal health issues in that case. Right. So the same could be true with economic or a variety of other issues. And I think some of this begins with those talking points or that the, those um, repeated premises that we are inundated with from school, from our public school days or wherever you attend your, or wherever, wherever you receive your education, which is, by the way, a completely different, huge topic that we'll get to another time. So the economy, um, debt, deficit and the the mantra that is always repeated especially from MMT folks is a national economy is not a household economy and they leave it at that right well i mean they go into detail but they say that the federal government because it can print money doesn't have the same concerns as a uh your your home budget right like i can if you have to pay the rent you and you're short that's a problem if you're the government and you have to pay the rent you just print more money. And that's a very simplified view of the world. But uh, I think the thing that's left out of that quite often is in our day-to-day life, we do not interact with the federal government. There have been some discussions about individuals receiving or being assigned or generally having accounts with the uh, with the Federal Reserve Bank, which would make stimulus payments super easy for example so if that were to to be the case then perhaps we would have a slightly more intimate relationship with the federal government and the the federal reserve banking system but generally speaking you and i are touched by the economy closest to us ourselves our you know our own <laughs> financial uh situations, I guess, uh, the local government who's working, who isn't up to the, your County state, you know, wherever you live in the world, the, the economy closest to you is the one that you feel the most, I think, and kind of ripples and trickles down and trickles up and depending on which models you agree with and believe in and whatnot. So think about this, uh, there are memes floating around about your tax dollars and how your tax dollars and sales you know, sales tax, income tax, um, 
unemployment tax. There's a, there's a whole list, depending on which meme you're looking at. And there's a conflation of federal income tax, for example, and state income tax and st other state taxes and local taxes. Well, in the United States and most places, uh, a country that has monetary sovereignty, sovereignty that can print its own money is in a very different situation than the localities within it. So, for example, we live in Nevada, where I am. Nevada cannot print its own money. So the budget and the economic conditions of Nevada are not as far off from a personal household budget and economic situation as is the state of affairs of a federal government that can print its own money. So I think this is often a source of, um, I'm not going to say confusion, but it's, it's an opportunity to either muddy the waters or clarify them because a state or depending on where you are. So, um, a uh, province, a state, uh, you know, how, whatever the, uh, in the hierarchy, there's the country. And, and then, uh, so here in the United States, it would be a state. The state is still beholden to the federal government for money, right? Currency, the, the fiat currency that is the U S dollar comes from the fed. The federal government can, can print more, can sell bonds and whatnot. States can sell bonds, but they cannot print their own money. So it's a, much closer to the way a business or a household uh, budget and financial situation can be classified than is the federal government. So the take-home and something that is surely the topic of discussions moving forward is whether the understanding of whether you're Keynesian or supply-side or MMT, whatever, is the the function of a country and the constituency below it, the counties, the, you know, the states, the counties, the cities, and the, you know, the, the regions, the neighborhoods, the people, ultimately the people, is the relationship between all those clear enough so that when there is a discussion about who's going to pay for the stimulus money, does that make sense? Does the argument against enabling the people that are the economy to pay their bills and eat and not be homeless ultimately feed back into the system? Or are we too worried about how the kids and the grandchildren are going to pay this debt to ourselves or is it to somebody else? Right. So there's a lot of different terminology that floats around. And I personally think in my research and observations lately, there's an over-reliance when explaining these things on macroeconomics. So you'll see or hear uh, discussions about, let's see, well, how are we going to pay for it, right? Uh, unemployment numbers, where's the tax revenue going to come from, tax cuts, reduce tax revenue, therefore the deficit, uh, budget deficit goes up because there's less tax revenue coming in. We have to borrow more, so there's more debt. We have to sell treasury bills. Uh, I think I said treasury bills. I'm sorry, I think I said bonds earlier. Treasury bills uh, that the government can sell. So how do you, how do you 
how do you grasp all these different things that are happening on a personal level when you hear in the news, when you read about it in Twitter and elsewhere about these, these macro factors, these things that don't really touch you directly, you know, the stock market, unless you are trading in the stock market frequently, unless you are invested, the stock market being up or down has a sort of a secondary or tertiary effect because ultimately it's, it's like when <laughs> there was always these, uh, you know, how did, how did, uh, the, the dad do at the tr dog track that depend you know, how that winning or losing would, uh, determine, you know, dinner or gifts or whatever. Right. So surely when investment is, um, is yielding gains, profits and, and other liquidity and, and, uh, credit and all these other nice things. Perhaps there's more investment. Perhaps there's opportunity to hire more. These are the trickle down factors. But if you are not investing in the stock market, then hearing that the market is up may yield a, a feeling that things are good. But if at the same time you are unemployed, well, what does that really mean? And I think there is no better example than the restaurant industry in the United States despite the fact that several people, many people have done well in these pandemic times because of their investments, because of their participation in infrastructure. I'm talking to Jeff Bezos, <laughs> I'm talking to Google, I'm talking to Facebook. So people that are involved in a uh, infrastructure plays in logistics, right? Getting, getting packages to people when small businesses have to be shut. Um, content, you know, YouTube podcasting. <laughs> so there are ways that you can capitalize on this. And some people have done so <laughs> in spades, but there are many people, you know, so the stock market is up and there's a lot of speculation because it's very much like gambling. In my opinion, you know, you're speculating, you're placing your wagers on stocks that might go up and by extension, um, derivatives and uh, possibly commodities. Maybe you're playing in Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies. So <clears throat> if you are able to uh, participate in these, these markets that don't have a direct connection to on the ground commerce, then you're probably feeling like things are okay. Maybe you're in Congress and you're completely out of touch with humanity. But if you are a restaurant owner or a service industry employee, if you're a dealer at a casino, if you are in the tourism industry, the stock market is up, but you may be having tough times. So how does that square, right? So my contention and something that I will, again, hope forms a, uh, a nice chunk of the economy-earing topic uh, is, or my my interest in this is that uh, the macro view of the economy is useful, but not, uh, maybe it's normative, but it is, it is not useful for the people that make the economy. That's us. Because while some economist who is advising a president or a member of Congress or in a think tank, an economist may view unemployment and sector unemployment 
as indicators for the strengths or weaknesses of a market and how it will impact production and stocks and GDP and all these other gross numbers. Uh, at the end of the day, the micro view, the microeconomic view is, am I able to pay my bills? Am I able to pay the rent? Am I going to be homeless next month? Am I going to be starving? Do my kids, is my family paid for, uh, uh, accounted for? So by, by taking a macroeconomic view, economists and the models that they develop and sometimes uh, advocate that they use for making decisions or advising their colleagues and clients and whomever, right? Like I said, presidents, Congress, whomever. Are those models that are typically macroeconomic accounting for realities that individuals that are the economy are actually facing? So one of the books I have not read yet is, and I want to try to, Take a stab at getting this right. The Case for a Job Guarantee by Pavlina R. Cherneva. Cherneva? Cherneva? I apologize right now for that. <laughs> Hopefully that's close. So the Case for a Job Guarantee. That's a, um, a big factor in monetary modern monetary theory. Uh, the, that camp is very strong on making the jobs guarantee a critical facet of stabilizing an economy so that uh, there is there is capital injection without concern for deficit spending because government deficit is economic surplus in the hands of the private sector okay that's that's balancing right if if uh, the government is spending more than it has, you know, deficit spending, then the money must be ending up on the other side of the ledger. And so we all have more money to spend. It's more, more money in the system. Okay, sounds good. That view is tempered by concerns for inflation. So too much money dumped into an economy will lead to price increases. Okay. Sounds, sounds okay to me so far. There's a, there's a, there's a piece of a talk that I've tried to find, and I will try to find it again, from Mark Blythe, professor at Brown. He says the value of the dollar comes from, well, the the U.S. dollar is a global reserve currency, which is a nice feature. But it comes from the confidence that everyone has in the dollar not going anywhere, not going to disappear anytime soon. And that comes not only from our brief history on the planet, but our sheer military strength, our capacity to innovate and, and uh, produce, right? So the, the U.S. dollar has a certain cachet in the world as a global currency, as the petrodollar. Confidence in the dollar is not going anywhere. But... What happens when people start losing their jobs? The economy turns south. Not a lot of money floating around, literally. So the government can inject these dollars with confidence. That's the MMT view. With confidence that the, the, that it's not going to do 
tremendous damage to economic standing on the globe, that, um, that prices, price inflation is the concern, but not the actual deficit number. We can just print money all day within some sort of weird limits that are sort of nebulous. That's one of the weaknesses of MMT, I think. But the facet that, that is the greatest concern to me is the jobs guarantee. So again, the case for a job guarantee. Have to read it, have not read it yet, but in the same talk about the aircraft carriers and the strong dollar, uh, Professor Blythe also mentioned the problems with a jobs guarantee is that job guarantees are also inflationary. So if everyone is able to work, then everyone is able to change jobs. And if you're guaranteed to always have a job, and that's always a sort of nebulous guarantee as well, then hmm, I'm not making enough doing this job. I'm going to go and get a different job for more money. So the mechanics of this guarantee, I hope, are laid out in the book I mentioned because to me, and so let me backtrack a little bit. So in Professor Blythe's presentation, he was talking about uh, private sector job guarantees. And I know from my experience in the, uh, in the past that there are some countries, some governments with policies that offer something like a job guarantee or they make it difficult to downsize, lay off. So these, these have issues, but ultimately at the end of the day, while they do empower employees and they are generally good for at the micro level, they can be inflationary. They can cause, uh, well, they can cause prices to rise. The MMT view on jobs guarantees are more local level uh, private sector guarantees, which I think are also problematic for a variety of reasons. But to me, that is the most hand-waved component, which I hope I can, I can glean some sort of insights about where the hands are waving from that particular book, since that is the one frequently referenced. But if you are, if you are able to always find a job in the private, I'm sorry, in the public sector, if I didn't say that before, public sector job guarantees from MMT, Well, what does that do to the economy at the same time, right? So uh, in uh, Dr. Kelton's book, uh, The Deficit Myth, she suggests that uh, public sector job guarantee with a minimum wage set slightly above the, the prevailing minimum wage would enable a de facto increase in minimum wage because you don't have to regulate it. You simply create a marketplace for the increased wage which sounds good. However, the public sector hiring uh, infrastructure to me would seem a bit of a challenge that is never really clarified. And again, I got to read that book because to me, that is the overarching problem. You cannot simply employ people. And there can be an argument made that back in the 30s, as we were coming out of the depression, the Roosevelt, um, I can't remember what it was called. It was essentially the shovel-ready job thing that that word has been tossed around in more modern times. So public sector, infrastructure, uh, road building, etc. In fact, our national highway system came 
after World War II, but it was certainly a massive national infrastructure project. So there are projects that are probably worthy of a public sector jobs program, but guaranteed jobs in the public sector to me are problematic, but are also the topic of much more research and discussion. But that's, that is to me the sticking point for modern monetary theory from a macro view. So that's the macroeconomic view of a jobs guarantee as a, as a way to stabilize and strengthen an overall market. Right, but what does that really mean at the micro level? What does that mean to me? What does that mean to you? What does that mean to local jobs, local job programs, et cetera? So I think that's one example to me where macroeconomic discussions, theory, explanation, policymaking can sort of break down when you realize that some of those macro variables that they're using in their models maybe aren't based in reality. <laughs> I know that's crazy, right? So exactly exactly what does it mean to be unemployed? What does it mean to be underemployed? Do unemployment numbers uh, as reported in the news when you when you see jobs reports and whatnot, are those accounting for people who have given up? Right. There are there are two unemployment numbers. One is usually in the news and one is more reflective of reality. The world, we always hear these things. And then if you really want to start reading, I'm sure you can delve into you know, where the data is coming from. Is that self-reported? Is that through unemployment uh, payouts, right? Uh, if you receive unemployment insurance, you are accounted for somewhere when that money runs out or if you stop looking how does that get counted is that always reported is that reported transparently so what does it really mean because a stable economy arguably has as low uh, as close to zero an unemployment percentage as possible <clears throat> but what does it mean if you want your unemployment to go to zero but with underemployment above zero percent so Merely looking at the opaque, you have a job numbers may not account for you are able to pay your bills numbers, right? So there again, the macro concerns, to me, uh, gloss over micro concerns, which are those of the people in the economy. That's us. That's me. That's you. So I think one of the ways to approach understanding of how the economy works. I mean, it's sort of like understanding how a swimming pool works, right? When you're in the swimming pool, it's good to know where the stairs are, where the ladder is, where the lifeguards, if, if there are more than one. Where's the deep end? Where's the shallow end? How does treading water work, right? If you are in the swimming pool, it is really a good idea to know, to have a, a minimal set of skills, how that swimming pool works and how it can harm you right? Because other people may be adjusting the chlorine and the muriatic acid levels. They may have, um, they may have, uh, cleaning equipment. They may have floating devices. They may have those lifeguards. 
the support infrastructure around the pool is important as well, but you're in the pool. It's important that you know how that pool works and what can go wrong for you, right? And I, I hate to go here, but there's, um, I think it was on 60 Minutes many, many years ago, there was a little mini epidemic of people in smaller, like a hot tub, small pools with a shallow end drain. The suction in the drain was strong enough so that if you happen to find yourself sitting on the drain, the suction could possibly completely remove your intestines. Uh, I'll leave that there. But uh, So it's critical for, for something like a swimming pool to understand how it works and what, what can hurt you. Uh, in my mind, the economy, which is you and me, like a swimming pool, is something that we should understand because we are in it. And there are a lot of things in it that are beyond our control, but which can do us harm or which can lead to a, a pleasant afternoon with uh, <laughs> filling our pockets with uh, whatever the equivalent of money in a swimming pool would be. But, you know, the take home is that uh, as members of the economy, as, as in fact, as, as we are the economy, I mean, think about it. There, there are no ro robots are interesting and automation is going to be an issue, possibly a growing issue. And I've got a whole series of articles I've written exploring, just pondering universal basic income, how that relates to job guarantees. So I've I've just dipped my toe in the swimming pool, so to speak, um, to get to get a better handle for myself on this, and which is why I want to talk about it. So as automation continues to come onto the scene, it, that's all well and good. Uh, jobs might go down, but. An economy is not only production, but consumption. So who is going to be buying things that these robots are making? Who is going to be paying for the services that some, not necessarily robots, but you know, automation systems, uh, AI, cloud services? Somebody, somebody has to pay for these things if money remains the, uh, the fuel of the economy, the uh, capital that flows through it. You know, if I, if, if there was a, I was literally sitting in a meeting a couple of years ago where someone presented the notion that this automation scheme will reduce the need for employees in a particular workplace by a frightening percentage, you know, more than half. And that, that received a positive response. So, but, but without thinking that through, so that, so let's assume that that's a good intention, right? Like, yay, I've done a good thing. I've saved people from needing to do dangerous or repetitive tasks in a factory or maybe in the case of an AI, it's uh, phone calls, phone support, the creepy robocallers are becoming more and more normal sounding, which is weird, right? Uncanny Valley on the phone. So if you, uh, if you, with best intentions, drive down the need for human employment, human workers, well, UBI proposals, uh, Andrew Yang, others, they're supplementary, but how do you continue to fuel an economy where your consumers 
are no longer producing. They're not, they're not a part of the means of production, right? So they're, they're, they're left to consume based on some minimal basic income, however that would work, right? So that would have seems to me would be inflationary. So these are the sorts of things I, I could keep going. I don't want to, but these are the sorts of things that I would be concerned about during these weird economic times. We are, unless you, unless you have your stock in the, well, actually technically Boeing, there've been several uh, stocks that have rebounded as I'm saying this. Boeing with their 737 MAX, which uh, that is a, an entirely different topic to get into, but uh, even though they were on the ropes, now that the uh, the vaccines, despite the fact that we are super early in the deployment of those, uh, vaccines and uh, stimulus money and uh, whether or not jobs reports are reflecting some sort of positive changes or if those are a reflection of people giving up, don't know. But as these things, as 2021 commences shortly, a new president, maybe, <laughs> uh, assuming there's a new president uh, with whatever slightly left or more centrist, who knows, uh, policies come from that change in administration, whatever the state of the Congress is at the time, what will that do to future uh, capital injection to aid in recovery? Will there be a continued uh, supply-side economic drive to cut taxes or to bail out corporations and banks and you know allow the money to go down into the pockets of employees? Or, or does it make more sense to give money to people and have them spend and have the marketplace choose winners, right? So should Boeing stay in business from an economic standpoint? Well, from a micro standpoint, that doesn't help you put food on the table unless you're an employee. But from a macro standpoint, having a robust transportation uh, sector in the long term, uh, of course, is sensible. And I say, of course, with an asterisk, because maybe that's wrong. <laughs> so to me, these are the these are the times where we should really start to look very seriously at how these models work, how economists are viewing our economy. And uh, I will we're, we're coming to the end, don't worry. And uh, and to me, uh, so economeering to me is. Um, when I when I first graduated from college, I used to work at a at a food company in Cupertino making computers. And I'll never forget this guy, I can't remember his name, sitting next to me in our bullpen cubicle. And he he referred to himself as a he called himself a QA engineer, I think. And I said, "What isn't your degree in English?" And he said, "Yeah, but you know, I'm doing work of an engineer." So I had my engineering degree and I kind of felt personally affronted. Is that a word? I took affront. I took a offense. I was not pleased with that statement because to me, and if you are a chef, if you're a doctor, if you're an attorney, there are several professions where 
whether you have a, a certification, right? If you're in Oregon, don't call yourself an engineer if you're not a PE. Get in trouble, for example. But if you have gone through the higher educational program to earn a title of some sort, and don't even let's not even get into Dr. Biden. But uh, to hear someone claim the same title as though that is a credential can be a little off-putting. So from that perspective, claiming to be an amateur economist, I think, is similarly a touchy subject. Uh, because I think economists have a certain view of the world that they have developed either with their research and papers and presentations and, and training or possibly an ideology about how economies work from their perspective. And I think <clears throat> I've seen this happen on Twitter. The the uh, people who don't know what they're talking about, quote unquote, rendering an opinion on the economy is uh, taken as offensive by some economists. So I do understand that, although, well, like I've said several times now, the economy is us. We are in it. We are we make it up. I think we should understand it, and we should be able to understand that what we do within it and how it is impacted by what we do. Does that make sense? So sort of inspired by that exchange from 1990. Five, I think. I used to say that I'm uh, driving the big trains when I was getting my degree. My I was not yet an engineer, but I was getting an engineering degree and I was going to be driving the big trains. So I was somewhat flip back then. But I think over the years, uh, you know, you pick up a certain sensibility about how things work and Engineers are typically handed a challenge to overcome, build a bridge to cross this with these resources and limitations, put a person on the moon, dive to the deepest point in the ocean, make a website that can handle traffic for people who, uh, who need health insurance. So, so typically, scientists deal with, uh, theoretical scientists deal with models, experimental scientists deal with laboratory experiments and results and check whether they match models. The economy, economists, are sort of like those research scientists, right? They can they can look at models. So theoretically, um, austerity makes sense because we want to keep that deficit low. Experimentally, well, you have to look at other countries and other economies and how austerity has impacted them and what happens over time and whether they recover. And even then, you know, anyone who's a fan of supply side trickle down. You're either a fan of it because you're a Reagan fan, maybe, or you just think it's a good idea, or you have benefited personally, or you're not a fan of it because you look at the numbers and you see what happens to wages and the the stratification of of incomes and wealth and and um, say happiness, I guess. So so economists to me are sort of like the scientists and me, I'm an engineer. Typically, while physics is interesting, while chemistry is interesting, you know, the chemistry of, uh, of solvents and solutes, of, uh, of, a, of a flow process, uh, 
you know, inputs and outputs and, and accumulation and waste and all that. You, know, you can you can build up a scientific model of how chemical reactions work and thermo and heat heat exchange and heat transfer and engineers they're they're probably making coffee machines. And I know I'm making coffee, uh, although I'm drinking tea right now, but I know I'm when I'm making coffee, I'm looking at my fluke IR thermometer and my uh, graduated cylinder. So I have the tools and I'm making, I have a practical output based on some scientific understanding, but a much more practical hands-on manipulation and observation of the system that I have on my kitchen counter. So to me, economists are like scientists, economiers are like engineers. And so moving forward, I would very much like to have different facets of and certainly ongoing conversations about things like universal basic income, jobs guarantees, public private sector, deficit, debt, the mechanics of treasury bills in a sovereign monetary system such as the American economy? What does it mean to have a private federal reserve? How does, uh, there's, there's often the contention that uh, every printed dollar bill or printed currency is debt with interest accruing. Uh, that's, that's, that's actually a very popular conception. Is it a misconception? Uh, austerity versus the uh, lender of last resort and capital injection that is the federal government. What does it mean for a state government to be budget constrained? Many times, I know Nevada is one required, I don't know if this is a federal law, you're required to have a balanced budget at the state level. So what if you can't do that? And we've heard um, Mitch McConnell, when, when asked about that, his reply was, well, maybe those states should declare bankruptcy. And if anyone recalls back in 2016 or so when President Trump took office, he said something to the same effect about the federal government, which you can't do as a federal government, full faith and credit, all that um, with our global reserve currency. So, and I, I'm, I'm only scratching the surface here. So really the, the interest that I have is in discussing the way the economy works from the microeconomic side, what does it mean to an individual person to be unemployed, underemployed, unemployed, to be able to pay bills, to have savings? What does money really mean? Uh, at the end of the day, money is just a quantification of influence to a person. Uh, it's something you can exchange for goods and services. So it's sort of a bartering normalization tool. But, and when I say influence, uh, you know, if you have a lot of money, you can exert a lot of influence, right? So if you take that down to zero, right? If I have zero dollars, I really can't tell anyone to do anything. I can't ask for much. Uh, I have zero. But if I have all of the money, I have a lot more influence. So these are the sorts of things that I'm planting as seeds for this particular topic. Economiering is an engineering style view and hopefully discussion and understanding of an economy for and of the people in it. And that is winding down. As I'm speaking to you now, it is now officially 
five minutes after midnight in the uh, UTC plus eight time zone here in Las Vegas, Nevada. It is New Year's Eve. I will post this uh, today, 31 December. And I hope that uh, this has been interesting. And I cannot stress enough the fact that these are the uh, the seed shows. The first few shows are, are about planting some seeds for future topics. There will be a meta show wherein I will discuss some uh, production elements and how I would like to have live interaction, guests, and so on. And I hope... This tea is not cutting it today. I hope my voice improves a little bit because right now it feels uh feels like I've been feels like I've been singing the Star Smangled Banner all day. <laughs> and I apologize for that. I'm sure you are uh if you've made it this far, I'm impressed and I applaud. My voice is sounding pretty bad. So on that note, I will wish anyone listening to this, even after, a very happy 2021. Please continue to stay healthy avoid transmission <laughs> you know what i'm talking about and uh let's see where the world goes and let's talk about it what works what doesn't i didn't really touch on what works and what doesn't about the economy because that's far too vast a topic and it's one that i hope we will address moving forward so on that note uh happy new year thanks for listening please do listen again tell your friends and Look for the Meta Show. Always look for the Meta Show episode to figure out where I'm going with this and uh, the ways that you can participate. Thank you very much for listening. Take care.